Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dialogue Out Loud series. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today, we're excited to have with us Bob Reese, well-known to many in this community as a writer and thinker for more than 50 years. We're really excited to welcome him to discuss his most fascinating article, Truth and Reconciliation, Reflections on the 40th Anniversary of the LDS Church's Lifting of the Priesthood and Temple Restrictions for Black Mormons of African Descent. Reese examines in this article the current state of affairs with respect to racism in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and proposes a path forward that adopts the truth and reconciliation approach, including radical honesty and making amends. Bob, welcome. It's so nice to talk to you about your work. Thank you, Taylor. It's always a privilege to do something to further dialogue. So, Tell us a little bit about your interest in the history and solutions to LDS racism. Why have you dedicated uh, some time to writing on this? Well, it is, in a sense, I grew up in a racist family, a racist community. I don't remember seeing a black person uh, after I, when I was living, in, let's say, in Arizona and Colorado. Um, those uh, communities were almost entirely white. Uh, when I, my father came back from the Second World War in 1945 and uh, taught the gospel to me, I was in a foster home at the time, and uh, he taught the gospel to me, and that was the beginning. I, I'd lived essentially in a, a godless world for the first decade of my life, and then joined the church, and uh, like uh, everyone of my generation, accepted certain things as axiomatic, uh, including the fact that I, what I learned from my culture, from my heritage, were that uh, blacks were inferior to whites, something that seemed just part of the, the fabric of our culture. Uh, I had, uh, when I moved to Long Beach from a small Arizona town, I moved to Long Beach, California when I was 15 and went to a school with a, a, a significant black population, and it was the first time I'd really been able to see and mingle with and interact with uh, uh, blacks of African descent. And um, and I can remember walking down the streets of Long Beach, seeing a, uh, a black man and a white woman walking toward me, and I remember instinctively clutching my fists as if there was something morally wrong with what I was seeing. And that was what I had been taught uh, when I went to BYU in 1953. I don't think there was a single black student on the campus. Uh, I went on my mission to Chicago and the great, uh, uh, or the Northern States Mission, as, as it was called, and had the experience of knocking on the doors of black families and uh, teaching them an initial lesson, but was instructed not to go back. Uh, it wasn't until after my mission that I joined the Army and went to Fort Ord, California for my basic training, and then went to uh, the, the Great South, to uh, Georgia, to do my uh, military police training. And on the plane, I, I actually joined the Army with my missionary companion. Uh, and we flew from Provo to 
uh, Laramie, Wyoming, to uh, to pick up uh, uh, to change planes, and there we picked up a, a black kid from uh, Haiti who had joined the military. Uh, we made friends with him on the flight to Orlando, and then when we got off the plane and got on the bus, we sat down, and the bus driver politely came over and addressed him and said, "You'll need to." moved to the back of the bus. And I moved over and said, oh, there's lots of room here. And he said again to this black uh, a soldier, you have to move to the back of the bus. And I looked at the back of the bus and saw the color line. And I, I was shocked. I, I know on some subconscious level, I knew what was going on in the late 50s and uh, 60s in the South. But it just was a shock to me. And then uh, went to Fort Gordon, Georgia, where I, I did my military police training, and there saw a, a very integrated um, army, as many blacks were part of the army. My sergeant uh, was uh, black. And I just began to to question what, why this social situation existed I came back, finished my graduate work, uh, or finished my undergraduate work at BYU, went to the University of Wisconsin, and there began to receive a real liberal education because Wisconsin was uh, one of the most liberal campuses in the country. Uh, and then I just continued to, as that kind of began my examination of my religion and questioning of certain things, and um, and I, I I really wrestled with the uh, the idea of blacks and the priesthood, but had rationalized it by saying uh, if the church had uh, welcomed blacks into the church, given them the priesthood in uh, the middle of the nineteenth century. Uh, given the political situation, it was possible that the church could have become a primarily dominant black church because uh, of uh, in in Missouri uh, and elsewhere, we uh, at least Joseph Smith's theology was welcoming to blacks, and uh, he ordained blacks to the priesthood. So I I, I heard this rationalization, kind of accepted it. Uh, but still was very uneasy about it. And when I was teaching at UCLA, I began to teach black literature. It was a time when white men could do that, or white teachers could. And and teaching and, and reading Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin and Toni Morrison and other black writers, I suddenly understood for the first time in my life something about what it meant to be black in a white, dominant white culture. And um, I, again, began to uh, read more deeply into the scriptures and could remember the Book of Mormon scripture, all are unlikened to be black and white, uh, uh, male and female, bond and free. Um, and then as editor of Dialogue, uh, I received this manuscript across my desk from one Lester Bush, and with the manuscript of Mormonism is Negro uh, problem. I was a no, history of Mormonism and Negro, the Negro. 
the Roman policy, uh, there was uh, a thick uh, binder of all of his research. And as I read that article, it was as if scales fell from my eyes and I saw for the first time the truth of what our teaching and our history was. And what was so impressive about Lister's uh, article was that it was very dispassionate. It was a, a model of objective, uh, uh, sincere, responsible scholarship. And knowing that it was really uh, a kind of like having somebody put a bomb in my hands, uh, I my uh, I called my editorial staff together and we talked about it. Uh, you know this this could be a problem for us. We knew that dialogue uh, was uh, not uh, that it was controversial by this time among uh, leaders of the church and many members of the church. Um, so we decided after really a thorough discussion and prayer that we would uh, publish it. And uh, But we decided, and in the spirit of dialogue, to ask three scholars to respond to it. So we asked Jane England, Hugh Nibley, and Gordon Thomason, three really respected scholars, to respond to it, which they did with different perspectives. And uh, we published it. Uh, before publishing it, however, we had uh, uh, word had gotten out, and my mentor and the most influential teacher I had, Robert K. Thomas, uh, was vice president of BYU, and uh, uh, he called me and said, you know, you shouldn't publish this, Bob. And I said, uh, well, I understand that it's controversial, but uh, I, th I think we've decided to do it. And he said, that would be a mistake. And I said, why? And he said, the brethren don't want you to do that. I said, how do you know? And he said, from sources high up. And I said, Bob, I said, we've thought about this, we've prayed about it. I assume if publishing it is a mistake, I'll be forgiven. And he said, you won't. <laughs> uh, and he said, you, you face uh, some significant consequences of this, which I took to be possible excommunication. Uh, it, it was really a very difficult place, but I felt, and we felt morally compelled to publish something that seemed true and seemed defensible and seemed responsible. So um, one of the things we did was to put together an ad uh, that uh, very uh, of a very prominent black man uh, looking out at the camera, and underneath it there was a quote from Joseph Fielding Smith: "Darkies are wonderful people, and they have a place in our church." Uh, and I said, uh, and the caption was, uh, uh, "This is uh, we now have a context in which to put this," and so this ad. Uh, I later published in Dialogue uh, an article, a story of an ad that never ran, because we had uh, uh, it was taken both to the University of Utah uh, student uh, 
newspaper and the BYU student newspaper. And uh, in both instances, it was turned down. So it never, it was an ad that never appeared. But I think it, it really, from my point of view, looking back and having read recently uh, a kind of a history of uh, that time and of, of Lester's article, uh, and I, I had the privilege, my wife and I had the privilege of being at the 40th anniversary uh, celebration, and uh, Lester and uh, Greg Prince were there. And we, we met afterwards and talked about uh, what had happened. But that, I think that was the beginning of the unraveling of uh, this very destructive uh, teaching and practice in the church. So Bush's article is in 1973. By 1978, the church has actually uh, ended this practice of prohibiting black members of the church from uh, uh, attending the temple and black men from holding the priesthood. Uh, what other efforts has the, may, has the church made in the last uh, several decades to resolve this problem? And why do you think that they have fallen short of their intended target? Well, starting in uh, 78, with you know, the dialogue issue was published in 76. Uh, some people feel that uh, it had an influence on President Kimball's decision to uh, rescind the, the prohibition, uh, to change the doctrine and the policy. And I think many people, I remember uh, hearing, we had some friends, uh, Susan and David Egley, who had moved from our congregation in uh, West Los Angeles to to Salt Lake City, and uh, we'd have many discussions about this. They called us to say the church had done that, and we, as a family, had been praying about this, hoping that this day would come. And so when that news came, it was very joyful news to us. We rejoiced, as I think many people did. Uh, there was the, uh, the common understanding that President Kimball had received a revelation to reverse a previous revelation, a revelation given either to Joseph Smith or to Brigham Young. And so that that mythology persisted that this had been a revelation that the Lord had spoken and that it was God's doing. Uh, that, uh, that did not satisfy me because I, I knew what the doctrine had uh, had been from the uh, originally, and then when Brigham Young had changed it, the further history uh, research uh, and the fact that uh, more blacks began to join the church because of the lifting of the ban, there began to be uh, black members who uh, wanted their own congregation. They formed the Genesis branch in Salt Lake, uh, but there began to be more and more study. Uh, of history, and then the church, uh, uh, with responsible uh, scholars like Paul Reeve and uh, others uh, looking deeper into our history, uh, the church published its uh, uh, official doctrine or official paper on race and priesthood, and uh, and that, in a sense, what it did for the first time was to acknowledge that the teachings of the past were erroneous, that they were not based on revelation, they were based on mythology, and the church disavowed the, those teachings. Uh, anything that's different from what we are now 
teaching was not inspired. But there was not ever an apology. There was not ever a um, uh, what we would call truth and reconciliation. There was a wish for that, but one of the consequences is that racism continued and still continues today, both in, in American society, in Utah, and in the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At the same time that the church is growing the fastest in, uh, uh, in Africa and in, in nations in Brazil where there's uh, African uh, heritage. Uh, and so uh, my own sense in reading this history and knowing of it is the one step that was missing was that the church had not fully apologized, uh, uh, had not uh, taken steps for some kind of reconciliation. In fact, I thought that this would be happening at the 40th anniversary of the rescinding of this, and, and I, I was really grateful for the opportunity to go to the conference center and uh, on that, uh, that celebration. And I was very interested in what seemed to me a kind of uh, contradictory message. One was this beautiful message from the black members of the church, uh, the Bonner Choir, other people who sang and who told stories and who acted out some of the history, and the fact that there was in that uh, uh, celebration no apology, no uh, acknowledgement. Uh, there was, in fact, a very clear direction. Uh, some people uh, want to look backward, we want to look forward, uh, and so there was clearly uh, an intention to you know, not go back and look at the history, not go back and look at what had happened, but to, to look forward. And while I could understand that, I felt something was missing. I was fortunate to live in a time when uh, there was the Truth and Reconciliation uh, campaign in South Africa, when uh, Desmond Tutu and many other people were uh, were involved in that. I can remember uh, at you when I was teaching at UCLA, the Desmond Tutu came to campus, and I met him, and uh, he talked about the Truth and Reconciliation uh, campaign, and I just remembered that that there had to be something that that made a. a a really a kind of final and clear cleavage from that past. And so as thinking about that over the years, I I felt this was one thing that the church could do. And so that was why I wrote the article, and that led me to look at a number of different things, including evidence of continuing racism in the church and in Utah and among Latter-day Saints. So, or not where we should be, and um, I, my work, uh, you know, I think people know that some friends and I started uh, the Bountiful Children's Foundation a number of years ago, and uh, we are 
uh, in a number of African countries. Uh, and uh, I traveled to Madagascar, which is part of the African uh, uh, community, and uh, our work there. Uh, and I'm, you know, uh, Margaret Blair and others who've gone to the uh, DRC and are doing work among. So there's a lot of interaction between the church and what's happening in Africa, and the church is growing in Africa. My concern is that many of the people in Africa know nothing about this history. And, and if they find, if they discover this and wonder, why didn't I know this? Why hasn't something uh, been done to, to kind of more, more permanently heal uh, what the, the, the trauma of this history? Uh, so I think it would just be such a spiritually mature thing to do, to really do a formal truth and reconciliation campaign patterned after what happened in South Africa. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show to talk to you more about this proposal. We hope that our listeners have enjoyed this conversation and have learned something new about healing the past and present racism in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to check out Robert Reese, Truth and Reconciliation, Reflections on the 40th Anniversary of the LDS Church's Lifting of the Priesthood and Temple Restrictions for Black Mormons of African Descent, and the Summer 2023 issue of Dialogue, and to explore other resources on this topic there, including a link to Lester Bush's classic article. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave us a review or get in touch with any comments or questions. We hope that you'll tune in to future episodes of our podcast. Please subscribe and rate the show, and be sure to check out the whole range of shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. Thanks. Welcome to Bristlecombe Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside where we discuss faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. The central question we ask each other, as well as poets, artists, activists, and other guests around our virtual fireside, is what does it mean to belong to the earth? So if you've ever wondered how to reground your faith and spiritual practice in the stuff of the earth, this is the podcast for you. Catch up on previous seasons by subscribing to Bristlecone Firesides on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth. Dialogue Podcast Network.